lesson for today is from the 8th chapter of Mark, the 31st through the 38th verses. And then Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days be raised again. He said all this quite openly and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at the disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wants to become my follower, let them deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. The word of the Lord. It's the second Sunday in Lent. And as we move deeper into this holy season, we are forced once again to look at aspects of the gospel we might just wish weren't there. Each of the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, gives us a version of the account I just read for you. And of course, this isn't the only place in those Gospels where Jesus gives a stark and a frightening vision of what it might mean to follow Him. It is only human nature that we prefer to focus on what is comfortable and safe and on those comforting passages of Scripture. That's just human nature. We all do that. And one of the chief criticisms of religion in general and Christianity in particular is what Karl Marx wrote, that religion is the opiate of the people. And on one level, we understand that. For this question, all religions would soothe us and help us deal with life's hard knocks. And there's nothing wrong with that in as far as it goes. But the problem in this and why Marx is dead wrong is that Christianity, when it is true to the Scriptures, is completely honest and forthright and open about the trouble that life brings. Rather than being a drug that takes away the pain of life, it is a call to embrace life even the hard parts of life. And far more importantly, if we are to believe Jesus, following Him is a call to self-sacrifice, taking up a cross and following. Christianity never has been about taking away all of life's struggles as much as we sometimes might wish it did. If we're attempting to follow this one we call Lord, we also know that following Jesus is tied up with a whole series of costs. Yes, faith is wonderful, it is positive, it makes life worth living, it certainly does that. But following Jesus can also be very difficult. 
G.E.K. Chesterton was right when he said, Christianity is not an idea that's been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and left untried. And that's absolutely right. And that's the struggle of the text for today. It's not that it is so difficult that we don't understand. Rather, I fear we understand, but we really don't want to hear about taking up crosses. This is the first time in Mark's gospel where Jesus tells the disciples where he's going and what awaits him when he gets there. He's moving out of the Galilean, the Galilean time of his ministry and he's moving toward Jerusalem. Now, we know what that means because we've read the other side of the text. But the disciples don't. They're living it as it's happening. Some commentaries say that it's the end of the Galilean spring and the beginning of the Jerusalem winter. And that sort of tells you everything you need to know about how tough the texts are going to become. The disciples, as I said, don't know. They don't understand what's happening, but we do. And you can look at the text just before the passage today and the ones after, and you can tell there is a distinct chill in the air over this one particular movement in time as Jesus sets his face toward Jerusalem. And that's the words of the Scripture. Peter, who is the acknowledged head of the disciples, takes Jesus aside and rebukes him. Now, how gutsy is it to rebuke the Messiah? You know, that's pretty tough. Peter must have known Jesus awfully well to be willing to take that chance. But in Peter's defense, the way Jesus is acting as a Messiah is not anything like Peter's been taught that a Messiah should act. And literally in this same setting, Jesus has just asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? And some say, well, you're John the Baptist, and others say you're Elijah. And who do you say that I am? And they say, you are the Christ. So they've got that part straight. Peter wants to contradict Jesus' vision of what kind of Messiah he's going to be. Now, it's interesting if you go to this account in Mark or in, in, in Matthew or in Luke. In, in Matthew, he has the words, Lord, you, we, you ought not let this happen. See how much softer that is than rebuking? In Luke, he fails to mention Peter's outburst at all. Luke doesn't even record that part. Are they so disturbed that Jesus is doing this and the disciples have so misunderstood that they simply don't write it out? How can Peter the rock? Well, it's wonderfully accurate how good it is to look back and recognize all the things we should have known back when. You know, hindsight is a wonderful thing, as we say. Peter acts like a human being. And Mark records that fact for us, making mistakes, saying foolish stuff, rebuking the Messiah. And, of course, Jesus turns around and rebukes him. 
And what you got to know about the word rebuke is interesting because rebuke is what Jesus does to demons. So it's even more gutsy than you think it is when Peter rebukes Jesus. Jesus, in rebuking Peter, says, Get behind me, Satan. Now, maybe he understood that the forces of evil is behind Peter's comment. I don't know. But Peter and the other disciples are being allied not on the side of God, but on the side of evil. That strong language from the teacher. And it must be something very important, something we would call crucial. You know where the word crucial comes from? Like a cross. It's important. If it's crucial, it is of cross-like importance. And so Jesus says, if you want to follow me, if you really want to be my disciple, then you deny yourself, you take up a cross, and you come after me. If you want to save your life, you're going to lose it. If you lose your life for my sake, you will save it. And that's about the time modern Christians say, hmm, I think I'll skip that part of the gospel. Toughest lesson, I think, in Christianity it's certainly the hardest to learn. In fact, I don't think we ever learn it. I think we relearn it day by day and week by week. We never keep this understanding. Three times in Mark's gospel, Jesus predicts his suffering and death. And every single time, the disciples demonstrate that either they don't understand or they refuse to accept it. Now, maybe... Maybe we would understand this better if Jesus said, I'm walking the way of self-denial so that you don't have to. That'd make us feel really good. Jesus dies on a cross and therefore we don't have to worry about crosses. But that's not what it says. It's take up your cross. So what cross are we supposed to bear? Well, some people call misfortune a cross. A business fails, you lose a job, an investment turns sour, somebody you care about catches a fatal disease, any one of a thousand misfortunes, and they call that a cross. But it's just misfortune. It's not a cross. Some call disappointment a cross. They fail to get something they really thought they deserved. Their children don't quite live up to their expectations but those are disappointments. Those aren't a cross. Some people call physical disabilities or illness a cross. They have crippling arthritis, so they suffer from migraines, and they call that a cross. But no, they're terrible. But they're not a cross. What's a cross? A cross is something you bear because you follow Jesus. Jesus teaches us by his own example that crosses have three sort of core pieces to them. First, it's got to be voluntary. A cross is not a burden that's laid upon you. It is a burden you take up on your own because you choose to. 
Nobody made Jesus go to the cross. He did it voluntarily. We don't choose them. We don't choose the things that happen to them, to us, but we do have to choose a cross. We are, cons we are conscripted to carry burdens, but we voluntarily bear a cross. Think about the cross of Christ. He didn't have to do that. He could have stayed in Galilee where everybody liked him and everything was going well and chances are the Romans would never have come after him or the Pharisees either. But he takes it up on his own. And that's what he means when he talks about taking up your cross. It's not stoically bearing the unavoidable. It's deliberately choosing to do something that you could have avoided, but you know God is calling you to do it. Second thing is crosses are always sacrificial. It costs something. It may cost your time, your resources, your best efforts, Indeed, like Jesus, it may cost your life. Now, I have a suspicion that if you think about it a little bit, you know people who have behaved in just this fashion. People who gave themselves for the good of others, who did not count the cost, and in fact would never have said what they were doing was bearing a cross because they did it not only voluntarily, but because they wanted to those who bear the burdens of somebody else. They do it without love. They do it with love without ever counting what it may cost. Last thing about a cross is that it's redemptive. It's obvious in Jesus. But it lifts us from a lower to a higher level. I thought a great deal of late about the young woman Kayla Mueller who was held captive by the ISIS terrorists in Syria. If you've seen any of the interviews with her family, they speak openly about their faith and hers and that she was there purely for humanitarian reasons. Nobody made her go. She chose to be there. She went as an act of faith, as a part of a medical mission group. And then she pays the ultimate price when the Jordan Jordanian fighters bomb the place where she's being held. That's bearing cross. I'm not suggesting that we need to each one volunteer and go to Syria. I don't want to do that. And frankly, I don't think that's what God's calling me to do. And yet I am much aware that there are crosses, acts of self-sacrifice that are around us every single day if we will open our eyes and our minds and do it. It brings us not just some level of satisfaction, but it may in fact bring God to the person we're helping. So what's the cross you're being called to bear in the life of the community, in the life of your church, 
Here in Lent, we're reminded that following Jesus is never simple, painless, and easy. It always costs us something. And what Jesus promises is, is that nothing worse can ever happen to us than happen to Him. Wow. There's something bigger than life and death here. We all ultimately face death. Bearing a cross is bigger than that. And that's why Jesus rebukes Peter, because Peter, like all of us, doesn't understand. He is not getting it. He thinks that maybe he can get Jesus to be the king here on earth and God will set up the kingdom and everything will be perfect and easy. And that's not the way the world works. And it's not the way the gospel works. For Jesus comes among us as the crucified one. Yes, ultimately the resurrected one. But to be resurrected, you have to be crucified. And so Jesus can tell Peter, get behind me, Satan. And it's a rebuke, but you know, it might also be an invitation. Because get behind me may also say, follow me. Let me take you to the next place where you need to be. This is where you belong, in step behind Jesus. Maybe we don't fully understand now. Maybe we only see in the mirror dimly, as we're told in Romans. But it's following along the way, walking with Jesus on this perilous, risky path that takes us ultimately to God. I didn't do a word count on this sermon, but I'm guessing it's probably about 2,600 words, yeah, give or take. Somewhere in the midst of those words, my suspicion is God had a word for you. I hope you heard it this morning. Not my words, but God's word for you. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.